Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We will focus on verses 12 through 15. But since because, especially in verses 12 and 15, Peter refers to the things he referenced in verses 5 through 7, we'll read from verse 3 to verse 15. Let us now give our attention to the reading of God's infallible word. His divine power, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please pray with me. Almighty God and loving Heavenly Father, we bless you and praise you that you have spoken, that you have raised us from the dead in the inner man, that you have qualified us to be in the kingdom of your beloved Son, ransoming us by his blood out of the kingdom of darkness. And because you have raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, May we strive, may we make every effort, may we cultivate godliness within ourselves for love for you and for our neighbor. Oh God, please help us. Help us now speak to us, open our ears, open our eyes to behold your glory in your infallible word. Make it so, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen. I confess to you that this passage is a head-scratcher for me. Why did Peter not just go from verse 11 to verse 16? I don't know. Why did he need to have a whole paragraph reminding us of things we already know? 
I'm not sure. How can I, as a minister in training, speak to God's people about reminding them of what they already know? I would rather have a seasoned saint do that myself rather than myself. But this is God's word. It is all inspired. It is all profitable. And we all need to be reminding each other of things we already know from youngest to oldest. Last time you'll recall that we talked about how this epistle is Peter's encouragement and direction for the church in light of the death of the apostles and in light of the rise of false teachers. This is his last will and testament of sorts. Peter's writing to answer the question of how the church is going to live without the guidance of the apostles. It is a farewell letter from Peter. He seeks to combat the teaching of unethical behavior and the denial of the return of Jesus and the final judgment. These false teachers claim that since Christ has not returned in our generation, and we all expected him to, he's not going to return at all. There is no final judgment. Your actions have no consequences. You can live as you please. And that licentious lifestyle manifested particularly in sexual immorality and in greed. Peter moved through this critique of the false teaching that his hearers had been, had been hearing about by speaking of God's abundant provision in the gospel of the Lord Jesus in verses 3 and 4. And on that basis, and for that reason... He spoke of their need to cultivate godly character by faith, those qualities we saw in verses 5 through 7. Here we see that Peter's death is near. He knows he is about to die. In light of this, he says, I want you to remember what you already know. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I want you to recall what I've already told you. Perhaps this seems anticlimactic. Hearing someone on their deathbed wanting a last bit of advice, particularly an apostle. What do we do now that you're about to die? What do we do now that there are no more apostles? How is the church to live, especially in light of the false teaching that is coming our way? Remember what I've already told you. Okay. No secret wisdom, no silver bullet. Remember what you already know. But doing so will help you handle the false teachers. It will help you to persevere to the end. It is simple and profound. He takes time to tell us here that he believes it is important to remind us of the things he's already told us, that it's important for us to remind ourselves of these things. So first of all, we see that we must know these qualities. Verse 12, you see Peter's intention or desire. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. This reminder is constant, it is continual, it never ceases. It implies a frequent communication between Peter and us, his hearers. But if he is about to die, how can he constantly remind us of these things? He intends to do this because he is writing these things down by divine inspiration, and he is aware of doing so. He is leaving us a God-breathed reminder for us always to use to remind ourselves this is his last will and testament. This letter, as well as the rest of God's word, serves as our ever-present reminder of the love of God in Christ and of obedience to God in Christ. His obligation of reminding his readers appears again in verses 13 and 15. 
He speaks of reminding his hearers three times in four verses. Reminder is one of the basic reasons Christ sent his spirit to his disciples. Think of John 14. Jesus speaks of sending his spirit to to his disciples. He says in verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will remind the disciples all that Jesus taught them. Jesus already told them those things. The Holy Spirit was not going to say anything new. So Christ sent his Spirit to them so that he would remind them of what they already knew. This is a a facet, an important facet, of a healthy relationship. In a good marriage, both spouses know of the love of the other, but there is a continual desire to remind the other. Perhaps you've heard about the couple who got married. Years go by. The wife asks the husband, why don't you tell me you love me? Husband says, I told you when we got married, and if anything changes, I will let you know. That is not what we're shooting for. That is, a, that is decidedly a sign of an unhealthy relationship. So what are the qualities that Peter intends to remind us of? Well, these are the things he says in verse 12 that are already known to his readers, not least because he has already spoken of it in verses 5 through 7. And they know these things in part because they are already established in the truth. So continue to grow in the truth that you have and are in. There are the qualities listed from faith to love in verses 5 through 7. These qualities do not stand on their own. They are supplements to faith. Faith comes first, and that is important. There's a, there's a way to look at this list of virtues in its diversity and in its unity. In its diversity, each quality is there for a reason. We should look at each one in turn, and we can't gloss over the list and skip over each individual thing. But also in its unity, this is a package deal. Faith comes first, love comes last, and we must cultivate all these qualities by faith in love. These qualities must exist together. They are irreducibly complex. All must exist together. We cannot have one or a few without the others. All must be present. Verse 5, Peter says to supplement your faith with these things. What does it mean to supplement? In other words, Peter is saying, since you have faith, let it not be wanting in virtue, in knowledge, etc. By means of your faith, supply virtue, supply knowledge, and so on. There is a note of urgency here. You must do these things now. Do not wait. There is a note of personal cost. Make every effort to do these things. It will be costly to you, but it will, for that reason, be rewarding. These qualities are the fruits and evidences of a true and a lively faith. In cultivating them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brothers, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God. All qualities, all uses of good works. All these things must naturally grow, from a true and lively faith. It's like saying of a tree, supplement your root with the trunk, the trunk with the branches, the branches with the leaves. It is one organic whole. There are various parts and aspects of the tree, but they all naturally grow up together. 
so too with these qualities. Faith will naturally issue forth in virtue unto love. When looking at these qualities, it's not necessarily the case that one gives birth to another, as if virtue gives birth to knowledge, for example. Rather, these are all aspects of life in Christ, all different angles by which to look at it. First, there is faith. Shorter Catechism 86, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. By this faith, we supplement it with virtue. Verse 5, virtue, the note there says excellence, moral excellence, as opposed to what the false teachers were saying, license, sinful license. You can do whatever you want because we believe that Christ is not returning again. Peter says, no, on the contrary, have excellent character. Let your faith issue forth in this moral excellence. Have knowledge. Have the comprehension of the Christian faith. Have an intellectual grasp of what God has revealed. Cultivate wisdom and discernment for this virtuous life. Self-control. Literally, one holding himself in. A restraint of sinful desires. Also, countering the, the false teachers of the day. Don't misuse Christian liberty. Use it for what it was meant for. We are not set free in Christ to sin. We are set free in Christ to glorify God by faith in him. Steadfastness. Patience. Endurance. The capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. Keep going. Trusting in God and looking for the coming of his son. Godliness, verse 6. He's already mentioned this in verse 3, that Christ has granted us all things that pertain to godliness. And so we live out of that rich resource and provision, an awesome respect and devotion accorded to God. Verse 7, brotherly affection. Philadelphia, affection for one's fellow believer in Christ in particular, not just to all mankind in general. Finally, love. Turn with me to that familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. This is the culmination of Peter's list here in Second Peter 1. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Later in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we move from faith to love. All these qualities are ours to be pursued in Christ. We cultivate these things by faith in Christ, in love for God and neighbor. And the life of faith manifests in these specific ways. Verses 8 through 10, we see that Peter is not simply reminding us of these qualities. He's telling us why they are important, what their value is. Verse 8, 
Peter says that you must possess these qualities and they must increase. It is not optional, it's absolutely necessary. It's a continual action. They must keep growing over and over. If they do keep growing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. That word ineffective there means unproductive or worthless. It's the same word James uses in chapter 2 when he speaks of faith without works being useless. Faith without works is dead. If you don't have these qualities, it is like you are dead as well. Unfruitful also means useless. Same word that Jesus uses in Mark 4 to speak of the, the parable of the sower. The choking of the seed of the gospel is made unfruitful. Useless, unproductive, this is what we are without these qualities, but with these qualities we are useful in God's hands. Verse 9, Peter goes on to say that lacking these qualities makes you so nearsighted that you are blind. Think of the involuntary contraction of your eye when you try to see something far away and you squint to try to make it look clearer. The idea here is perhaps a functional blindness. Your squinting is not ideal. You don't want someone on your team who has to squint to see the ball coming. Not ideal in in the game. You want someone who can see. This is the person who, who lacks these qualities. He's the one who's not living out of the abundant resources that he has in Christ. He's forgotten about the sin-killing, life-giving power of the exalted Lord. So nearsighted that he is blind. Verse 10, Peter goes on to say that if you have these things and practice them, you will never fall. Practicing these things is key in confirming your calling and election. As he says there, be all the more diligent. Another note of urgency. Be in a hurry. Apply yourself. Don't wait and do it with all your might. In the context of the false teachers here, don't listen to them. Practice these things and you will never fall. They will keep you to the end. Secondly, we see that in light of knowing these qualities, Peter reminds us to remember them. Now here in verse 12, we have another reminder of these things. It's not simply enough to know about them to read them once and move on. We must keep these things ever before us. He's not trying to say anything new here. He's saying, I know you know these things already. Nothing new. He's calling God's people to a greater knowledge of what they already know. He wants us to get these things on lockdown. See the comprehensive relevance of the whole counsel of God. Just because we know something doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded of it. Knowing something is just the beginning, in fact. We must be reminded over and over again. We must grow into what we already know. I think there's a tendency to think that just because we know something, we get to move on from the so-called basic things onto bigger or more important advanced things. I helped out with a college group when I lived in Ohio at a church, and there was a curriculum being used and the leader took out the section on the atonement because he thought that the kids at the Christian school are already getting this stuff, they already know these things, we can move on to other matters. You've already heard about the atonement one time, or a few times in the school, let's not talk about it in the church group. We need to hear about these things over and over again. You can't 
know it too well. You can't know it good enough. Knowing something is not a reason never to be reminded of it. It is the foundation for a continual remembrance of it. I'm not sure if this is in the published edition, but at least in his talk at one of the Desiring God conferences on suffering, David Pallison begins his talk on Christ's grace in your suffering, saying, there's a sense in which everything I'm saying, everything I'm going to say on suffering, we all already know. We already know these things. We know to pray, we know to fill ourselves with God's word, have fellowship with God's people. We all know the, the right answer. But in a deeper sense, a more important sense, we don't know it. You already know what to do when you suffer. You already know what to do when God gives you good gifts. You already know what to do in whatever situation. You know the right answer, but you don't know it in a fundamental way. The answer is to put it to work. How is what you know relevant for this situation? Someone reminds you of something you already know, and you say, yeah, I I know that. We know that you know this. We all know these things. We've been taught these things. But how does it affect you here and now? How can you put it to work? How do you interact with what you know to see that it's relevant for what you're going through right now? As God matures us, we come to know the things we already know more fully in ways we couldn't have imagined before. I think of the example back in March when Annie was being born and we were in something like our 30th hour of labor and we were thinking, why are we doing natural childbirth? What were we thinking? Let's go to the hospital. Let's get a C-section. This is, this is too much. And in this, in this trying time, 2 Corinthians 4 came to mind. Paul talks about light momentary affliction preparing us preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I knew, okay, I'm in the light momentary affliction. I know that the beyond all comparison glory is coming. I know that childbirth is an example of that. There's something still in me that says, I don't know though. This is really bad. Is it really going to be worth it? And Annie came and I had no idea. We were blown away with joy. We hardly even thought of labor when she came. Whether it was worth it was not a question in our minds. So I've always known 2 Corinthians 4. I've always known that the light momentary affliction in which we live in this present evil age will be unworthy of comparison when the eternal weight of glory comes. I knew that when, when it mattered, and I still thought, but I'm not so sure. But I came to know that in greater depth at, at that moment. Just an example from my life, not necessarily normative, just an example of how God reminded me of what I already knew. Your hardest boss has an excellent way of talking about this, saying that the daily covenant life of the believer is peculiarly active and mobile. It's not static. Its distinguishing feature is not merely to stand in communion with God, as if we only do it once, but to draw towards God in an ever-renewed approach. And I like the way he puts that, an ever-renewed approach, over and over again. Keep reminding yourself of these things. Life in Christ is dynamic, not static. It is a constant reminding ourselves of what God has already taught us, that we may learn more of him. And Peter's hearers already knew these things. Perhaps they knew these qualities before he even told them about them. But they needed to be reminded again. 
So his hearers know these things. They're also established. They have been established, so they are established and always will be once for all. And that establishment that Peter speaks of cannot be reversed. When God's people are established in Christ, that cannot be undone. We're established here in verse 12. In the truth that you have, the truth that is available for your use, it is at your disposal. The truth that you have is meant to be put to work, so put it to work in your situation now. Verse 13, I think it right, or I consider it a responsibility. I consider it my duty to do this. This is Peter's apostolic obligation. He wants to stir us up by way of reminder as long as he's in this body or in this tent. This is similar to how Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's, let's turn there briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Start at verse 1, keeping in mind this tent idea. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still, clothed, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Peter picks up on this tent idea. As long as I remain alive. People look at this and think that Peter is affirming Gnosticism, a depreciation of the physical. And as we heard this morning, God made the physical. God made the physical very good. It is not better to be separated from the body. The soul is not better than the body. We are body-soul dualities. In the new heavens and new earth, we will have a resurrected body. And so it is profoundly wrong for the soul to be separated from the body. This is simply Peter's reference to his imminent death, not supposedly a reference to his Gnosticism and appreciation of the physical. It's interesting when he says in verse 13, talking about it stirring us up by way of reminder. That's the image of waking out of sleep, stirring up or waking up thoroughly over and over again. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 8 when the disciples are on the boat with Jesus and the storm comes, and the disciples are afraid, so they wake Jesus up. They stir him up out of sleep. They wake him up. Jesus, wake up, we're in a storm, and, and they're, they're afraid that they're going to die. They had a sense of urgency. Wake up now and fix this. Do it now. Peter was there wanting Jesus to be stirred up, wanting to be aroused out of sleep. There was a note of urgency, not excuse me, Jesus, whenever you get a chance, if it's, not if it's not inconvenient, please do something about the storm if you want to. Wake up now. We're dying. 
do something about it. Now, there's a key difference between that concept in Luke 8, when the, when the storm came upon the disciples, and how Peter is using it here. Obviously, the disciples were wrong. They were faithless in their fear and their urgency in waking up Jesus to calm the storm. But that's not what's going on here. Peter has the right kind of urgency. He has the right to stir us up in this urgent way. He wants to stir us up because he's reminding us to practice the qualities he's already listed. He's saying, it is urgent to do this, and I'm going to wake you up. Like we woke up Jesus on the boat. I'm going to wake you up because practicing these things, you will never fall. And in doing so, you will confirm your calling and election. So wake up and practice them. And we must be continually called to these things that he's told us about here. Third and finally, Peter shows us that we need to keep eternity in view. Verse 14, in the putting off of his tent, Peter knows that he's about to die, just as Jesus told him. This is probably a reference to John chapter 21. One of the last things Jesus, Jesus says in that gospel, a reference to Peter, when you were young, you walked about, you put on whatever you wanted, you went wherever you wanted. When you get old, you will be tied down and you will not go wherever you want. And John says this was to show by what kind of death Peter was to die. And you think, what, what kind of death was it? It doesn't seem very, very clear at first. This is a reference, though, not to a particular mode of execution or the details of how Peter was going to die, but that Peter would die as a martyr. He was going to be a martyr for Christ. Notice here that Peter's response to the imminence of his death, knowing that he's about to die soon, leads him to stir up and remind God's people of what he's told them about. He does not say, I'm going to die, you guys are on your own, good luck, trust the Lord. In light of his coming death, he focuses not on himself, but on others. He is radically selfless in light of his own death. He wants to pass on God's word to God's people that they may endure in the hardship of the false teachers and persevere to the end. Peter's coming death forces him to reckon with what is most important for the church to hear. His deathbed advice is simple. Remember what you know. And it's a simple command. Remember it. Verse 15, he speaks of making provision for them after his death. I will make every effort. He's especially diligent in carrying out his obligation, his part of the bargain, if you will. He is zealous to do it. He takes pains to do it. He's eager to do it. Peter has already told us to make every effort to cultivate our faith, that it would be supplemented by all the Christian graces he mentions. And he knows that he needs to make every effort too. This reminder is here at any time, whenever there is need. The reminder is always for us because we always have God's word, the apostolic word. We can recall these things because we have the scriptures, because we have the God-breathed deposit of this letter of the whole counsel of God. We can be reminded of what we already know, how to persevere therein to the end. Well, some uses of reminder and recall that we see from this passage. First of all, as we've already seen, we have to know something in order to be able to remind ourselves of it. You have to know something in order to remember it. You may have heard the phrase, 
Don't practice something until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. A stronger version of that I've heard, an amateur practices until he gets it right. A professional practices until he can't get it wrong. A continual reminder of what you already know to get it down deep within. Secondly, we see that we never advance beyond the basics. We never advance beyond childlike dependence upon our Father. Herman Boving says, In the Christian religion, even the most profound thinker can never rise above a childlike position of authority and faith. And I think of the humble genius that marked so many theologians of old. I think of when John Owen was about to die, and he spoke of Christ taking care of the church in his death. John Owen refers to himself as a poor underrower in God's ship. Christ the captain is still here. He will take care of the ship. I, losing me, not a big deal. I think of Francis Turton, how he commemorates his, his three-volume institutes. He says, I do not expect or ask for any praise in the future from my little work. I will consider my labor to be well-satisfying if you soberly and favorably regard that this work of mine renders service to the church of God. Anyone who knows about Turretin's Institutes knows that is not a little work, but he regards it as very little in light of service to his Lord. Third, reminding ourselves forces us to slow down. Think of how the, one of the Puritans references meditation. Don't float on the surface like leaves. Sink down to the bottom like lead. Slow down and cultivate what you already know. Fourth, it forces us, as we've seen Peter do, to prioritize and keep eternity in view. Peter knows he's about to die. He must put what's most important first. So remember what you've been taught. Keep in mind what you already know. Remember those things when they seem relevant. More importantly, remember those things when they seem least relevant because then they are the most relevant. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.